Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Walter Bosley. Last name is spelled B-O-S-L-E-Y. I've been on his show, and we talked about my book, Prophet of Evil. And then I had invited him on with Todd Wood to talk about the book about Ingersoll Lockwood. Very interesting story. A lot of people listen to that. I got a lot of good responses for maybe a topic not a lot of people knew about. So maybe that kind of found something in their minds they were curious about finding out about. But I saw his other books. Uh, Richard, uh, Walter Bosley's written many, many books. And I came across one that had Crowley on the cover. And I was like, oh, I gotta, I'm interested in this. Amongst other things, I was talking to him about Sir Richard Burton. He wrote a book about Sir Richard Burton, who I is associated kind of with Crowley. That was really one of Crowley's heroes, Sir Richard Burton. And he styled his life and his adventures on Sir Richard Burton. So Walter has kind of similar interest as I do. The title mm -hmm. of the book we're going to talk about today, and the full title, if you're watching on YouTube or Rockfin, is Empire of the Wheel, Espionage, the Occult, and Murder in Southern California. And he co-wrote that with Richard B. Spence. And I've had Richard on my show as well. We've talked about his books and Crowley. So I can put links to that in this the show notes for this. But uh, Walter and I are both in Southern California. There's a lot of rain here. So there's oh, a lot yeah. of kind of consternation. Like people are worried. Like when it rains in Southern California, it's basically like the equivalent of a blizzard. People can't handle it. But <laughs> my brother actually had, he was in, he's in Santa Clara and he had a tornado warning yesterday, which is like, unbelievable it's like a those are rare in california that's for sure yeah so that's something else but yeah so it's raining we need the rain it's all good but i'm delighted to have walter bosley on the show so walter welcome to the show thanks for having me here william this is uh this is always you know a pleasure to get on here and talk with you and you know you mentioned the cover the cover art that you saw the one with alistair crowley that's the new cover art the one you've got up here is the original so folks when you go out there if you see um you know two different cover arts it is indeed the same book but when you when you get the book it has the alistair crowley cover and what's funny is uh, this connects to rick spence uh, he had done, of course, his great book, Secret Agent 666. And originally he said, oh, I'd kind of like to not have two books with Crowley on the cover. So in the original release, we did not put um, Crowley on the cover, but, but the new release does because it was a few years down the road from from his book. Gotcha. Makes sense. How did you guys kind of uh, cross paths? Well, I investigated the what I called the case that this book uh is all about for two years before I even decided to write a book about it. Honestly, it was a personal obsession. It was this big, huge mystery that I had walked into after some intense and odd experiences with remote viewing of all things, believe it or not. And, um, I, I was, uh, doing this research. I was into it for a couple of years and Crowley uh, his, it, specifically his trip to America in 1915 became a major part of the research, a major thread. So of course, um, I had learned about my first exposure to Crowley coming to America in 1915 was Rick's book, Secret Agent 666. And I kept going back to that and pulling, you know, more threads from that. So I contacted him 
you know, to tell him who I was, what I was doing, and that there might be a Crowley connection and on and so forth. And the more I told him about what I was turning up, not just Crowley in the mix, but um, occultists and possibly espionage and stuff, you know, espionage, he's a, a scholar of that, the history of espionage. And he just kept giving me providing me great information, more details, more threads to pull, more leads, great background stuff. And so he was um, a, a source, a really rich source I was going to for, I think, the better part of a year. And finally, I just hit him up and said, hey, what you're contributing such great stuff to this book. Would you be interested in writing it together? And he he says, oh, absolutely. This is interesting stuff you've uncovered. So that's how that happened. Um, and then the second and third books, um, he got real busy cause he was a professor. I think he's retired since he got real busy. And I think the second and third books went in a direction that, um, was a little even more wild than what happens in the first book. So I wrote those on my own, but, but Rick has been just, he was a fantastic source, fantastic co-author. And, um, that's how that happened. Right, so this is just one part of a three-part series. Is that correct? Yeah, um, the the main trilogy, the Empire of the Will trilogy. Now, I do refer to the mystery in um, my Secret Missions series, specifically the book on Ambrose Bierce, because Ambrose Bierce, his father-in-law, owned some mining company out here in San Bernardino County, and Bierce had to come down here on occasion Um you know, we're talking, uh, I think between like 1895 and 1911 or something like that. Cause he disappeared in 1913. So there, there was kind of an empire of the wheel connection to Beers's activities and, and some other elements. Uh, so th- that's kind of a, um, kind of a spinoff of empire of the wheel, in a way, in a small way, but yeah, the the main trilogy is the Empire of the Wheel trilogy. Gotcha. And for people who don't know Ambrose Bierce, he's kind of like a local legend in California. He disappeared, traveled to Mexico, never came back. I think it was the right. Devil's Dictionary or Devil's Bible he wrote. <clears throat> yes, kind of yeah. like um, kind of like the Hunter S. Thompson of his time, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, certainly, with the attitude that he had, um, he uh, he is considered. He has been considered now the best of the Civil War veterans who wrote about the war. Um, which which he indeed was. But um, now going back to Empire of the Wheel, a lot of people ask me, okay, what does the title mean? You know, before they read the book, uh, this area. You're you. I know you're familiar with this this title, but this area, the San Bernardino Valley, with Riverside, with uh, going into Rancho Cucamonga, and I think all the way out to Upland, this is called the Inland Empire here in Southern California. Everybody knows the IE, the Inland Empire, and the wheel. So that's where I get Empire. Uh, the wheel refers specifically to the goddess Hecate, and um, when you read this book, you you meet the goddess Hecate, so to speak. Right, so it's H-E-C-A-T-E, right? H-E-C-A-T-E, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. And that's kind of like, a, isn't she like a symbolic of kind of like the 
cold feminine or something like that? Uh, Goddess of Gaunt? Is that right? More, more. No, no, that's Diana. Um, She is, she gets confused with um, some of the others, but she is specifically the queen of the crossroad, triple crossroad, um, goddess of the underworld. And essentially her myth is that when Persephone was kidnapped by um, uh, Jupiter, um, if I'm getting that right, Jupiter or uh, Hephaestus, the the underworld guy, um, her mother begs Hecate to go search for Persephone in the underworld. So Hecate takes her two torches to illuminate the way to the underworld to negotiate the return of Persephone. So it, it has all to do with all the the um, life and death and and return to life kind of theme. Um, I uh, I see her as um, she, she's also associated with the goddess Isis. Hecate is what they call a chthonic goddess, meaning those are the oldest gods and goddesses in the Western tradition. And their origin is the Black Sea, the Scythians, right? And it predates even ancient Egypt, the classic ancient Egypt, so that when you see the goddess Isis, who is veiled in Egyptian uh, mythology, uh, this is um, a reflection of Hecate. Uh, So um, she goes way back. Her origins are very murky. We don't know for sure. But um, now the witch culture loves to claim Hecate as their own. Uh, Basically, what you get out of the witch culture is their extrapolation of just certain aspects of Hecate. Um, There's much more to her than just the, uh, the witchcraft theme. But that's where most people get their exposure to Hecate. So they get all this dark stuff. She's this dark, evil, demonic thing, which is, you know, after years of research that I did and quite frankly, some interesting experiences, um, I don't see her as evil at all. Uh, she's she's the opposite, in my opinion. But, but she's more like electricity, right? Electricity can do wonderful, positive, constructive things. Um, but if mishandled can be deadly and, um, that's to me, that's, that's Hecate. Gotcha. And so she's related to these events that happened in the Inland Empire, correct? Yes. Um, and that, that comes through, um, you know, syncretism is where most famously, most popularly, um, the Roman Catholic church has syncretized, uh, ancient gods and goddesses into saints. Okay. And there is a St. Catherine of Alexandria whom the church admitted, um, I think back in the sixties or seventies might've been later that St. Catherine of Alexandria never existed. She's fake. She's made up. She was just, um, a syncretization of Hecate and the historical Hypatia of Alexandria who did really live. So they knew that in Egypt, uh, they weren't going to stop the veneration of the old goddess of Hecate in particular. So they just, they came up with a Catholic version, a Catholicized version of her, called her uh, St. Catherine of Alexandria. Same symbol. Hecate's symbol is the wheel. St. Catherine of Alexandria's symbol is the wheel and all that. So I was finding St. Catherine 
references St. Catherine churches, um, all this reference to St. Catherine specifically of Alexandria connected to all the weirdness in this research and also in the numerology. Um, she's represented by the number 100 and more specifically venerated in like the set of 250s. So when you would see 50, they would usually come with 250s, um, but, you know, equaling the 100. Uh, also, she's a triple aspect goddess. Three, and I know this gets confusing, the 100s, the 50s, but um, three is her primary number because she stands at the triple crossroad. Okay, the intersection of three symbolic spiritual roads, which I have since I think I figured out what those roads are. But that's where she stands in the underworld. The idea is when you die, you encounter her first. And um, because of the, um, the, the mystery here, and I'll be getting into this, are seven curious deaths that happen in the fall of 1915 here in San Bernardino Valley. Okay, seven really questionable deaths, which I am convinced were murder. Um, there was um, th there was a lot of spiritualism going on here in those days, and um, I was finding all sorts of uh, uh, references, themes popping up. Uh, representing the Eleusinian mysteries, which has to do with death and the underworld. And then, oops, knocked my mic over. And then I've used my hands a lot. Then, um, you know, re the return to life, the whole Persephone, you know, winter into spring thing. And Hecate is at the heart of all of that. So the more threads I pulled um, on the high strangeness and the numerology and stuff, the more and stronger Hecate was at the center of this. So I initially um, thought that, okay, if I'm right that these were murders, they were, they were done by somebody who was involved in the veneration of Hecate. And this was in my early understanding when I was still seeing her as just this dark, scary denizen of the underworld. And uh, the more I studied the more I researched, the more I dug into it. And quite frankly, the more experiences that I had, I came to see her as a much lighter, you know, more what I call good figure than dark. But um, she's there through the whole through the whole mystery. And so therefore, again, back to the title, that's why I call it Empire of the Wheel, because it's my opinion that somebody here in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and, and really probably on up to today, um, was venerating Hecate in, in the, their actions, their activities, their, uh, the, some of the buildings that have been constructed in these churches. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. But California's always been kind of a place where there's been new doctrines, new religions. And so many of Crowley's followers came to California that mm -hmm. it's a oh, it's a book in itself. Like you have Jack Parsons, you've got Huxley who knew about new Crowley oh, yeah. and um mushrooms. Mm -hmm. You have uh the guy from India who was supposed to be the world teacher. Vivek was ended, that Vivekananda or a different yeah guy? I think so he ended up at Mohai. Oh. Yeah, and it was. Um, he was supposed to be the kind of like theosophic, you know, right. being. He ended up here, and it just goes on and on. So it's not surprising that you know somebody who 
Crowley or uh, was part of the OTO or something was like mm-hmm. here. It's not that fast. Pasadena really isn't far from no, you. No, no, not at Babylon, all. Yeah. yeah, Babylon working took place probably within an hour or two of right. you up in the. Right. And, and this valley has been known. I mean, uh, I've spent a, the biggest portion of my life here, even though I've worked all over the world and been assigned all over the country in my career and stuff. Um, and all my life, I've always heard about the cult activity, the occult stuff that goes on here, the, the uh, sacrifice of dogs at intersections in Redlands, um, the cults that uh, uh, operated up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and, and how Fontana, which we call Fontucky, uh, uh, how there you know, are cults there. And then you, know, you read about this in books about satanic groups in Southern California. So this area is very much um, a, a kind of a magnet for that. And my associates, friends and research associates, um, Seshari and Dr. Joseph Farrell, you know, they, they said that they think this place is a very, very dark place and some very bad things were done here, including what Rick and I came to call the San Bernardino working, which is what we think um, involved these seven, what we say are murders. Seven murders over what time period did you say that was? Uh, the uh, Now, the first victim would have died in August, but his body wasn't found until November. But chronologically, he, he, was, he, he died in August, um, and then the next one was October, and then the next three were all in November with just within a two-week period, and then the last two were in December within just days of each other. So, And what year was that? You said 1915, is that what you said? 1915, right before the U.S. was, was, as the U.S. was leaning towards committing into the war, because we didn't get into World War I, obviously, until 1917. But the Lusitania had been sunk by a torpedo in May of 1915. So it was in that that era and and at that time because San Bernardino which still is but back then even more so was a major railroad hub okay um, it was the biggest most important railroad hub in southern california at that time and so therefore um anything transiting from the east coast to say San Diego or LA came through San Bernardino and that included the um the munitions that Germany was smuggling up from the Gulf of Mexico across the American Southwest to San Diego, where they would be put on ships and sent to um, India. Because as you recall, India was um, in its early days of its struggle for independence against England, from England. And World War I, of course, the Germans were you know, at war in Europe. So the Germans, anything they could do to keep the British uh, busy on two fronts, they were supplying weapons. And they were doing this through Southern California and San Diego. So the weapons that they were smuggling had to transit through San Bernardino. Now, what does that mean? That means there would have been German agents all over, spies, German spies all over San Bernardino um, to keep an eye to make sure the transfer from the train uh, east to the train to San Diego, everything went smoothly, right? 
And therefore, if there were German spies, there were British spies watching out for the Germans. And in the mix of all that, if you go back to California history, um, there were also spies from India because there was the what they called the German Hindu conspiracy that um, exposed their alliance through bombings and sabotage that Indian and Irish agents were doing up in San Francisco and down the coast. It was this big scandal, huge scandal. So that exposed that there were Indian, British, and German agents working all over California and um, uh, also here in the in San Bernardino at that time. Yeah, there was a huge scandal too about Germany asking Mexico to go to war against the U.S. in World War One, yeah. right? Was yeah, the too, so. Zimmerman, the Zimmerman Zim telegram, yeah, you know, right. revealed that. Um, right, so that was actually really real, and you'll see that sequence at the end of uh, the Wild Bunch, the Peck and Paw movie, where they first shoot the German spy. The German spy gets the bullet first, so that was <laughs> kind of real stuff. Like, uh, yeah, but so I mean, it really was a place of entry. California was still kind of wild oh, yeah. west at that time. Oh, and to throw another thing in the mix, to bring in the other thread, San Bernardino has the distinction of uh, being the place where the very first spiritualist temple in California was founded. And there were, um, there were some folks who weren't Mormon, but uh, came to San Bernardino Valley with the Mormons uh, when they settled in the 19th century. They got here, they settled in, they, uh, they started what was called the um, Brotherhood of Kindred Manifestations, and that was with some Mormons, um, maybe Jack Mormons, but um, eventually they split off and the Brotherhood became the first, literally called the first spiritualist temple. And it was renowned um, throughout the state, and as spiritualism grew, um, the... Uh, the San Bernardino Temple was really venerated and respected by the big spiritualist leaders. And of course, with a spiritualist temple and with spiritualism, you get your serious occultists. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right. So they're involved. They're just around that, that type of environment, right? Focusing yeah, yeah. Different types, yeah. Exactly. So you had this mix. You had the World War One espionage. You had the occultists all here on this stage and then you start having these very questionable deaths which again i argue were were murders and and, and for the record at the time when you look at the um newspaper articles of the day the journalists were all suspecting murder and and even the uh, police you really come away i come away and i'm experienced former law enforcement that that the, the the police investigating this suspected that it was murder also. Wow. So it's all in the news at that time. Wow. Yeah, even though some people wanted to say, well, the one lady was a suicide, you know, well, this they claimed that three of the victims were suicides. Okay. Um, Convenient. 
Yeah, and then, but then you had the problem of the three children who were poisoned and the toxin never identified. And the parents were cleared and, and they just, they never solved who gave those children, two of them poison candy, one of them a poison orange. Hmm. That's a, orange is what, a symbol of death in Italy or something like that, isn't it? That's why the I, orange is there. Yeah, and of course, this is, as the book cover shows you, um, Southern California, as you know, was at one time and for a very long time, the citrus capital of the United States. This is where the modern naval orange was developed and citrus money um, brought, you know, citrus brought the railroad and, um, and, and the railroad made the kind of, they kind of, co you know, right. co-opted on each other. It's all gone now, but it really was. California, Northern and Southern California were full of groves. Oh, yeah. When you when you see the uh, um, the old mansions here from the 19th century and right after here in Redlands and San Bernardino Valley, that was all citrus money. Those were all, I think a couple of them were railroad, but it was, the rest of them are all citrus growers. And right, so, so you have was, Orange County. Nixon's dad was a citrus grower. Yep. That's where he oh, grew yeah. up is on those. I mean really everywhere. It's a shame it's all gone, but uh, yeah, that yeah. was really the history. It's hard to believe the history of that time. Just, you know, turned it into uh, well, this, housing this, after World War II. Yeah, this was the, uh, and, and Californians will find this hard to believe. Um, I didn't know this. Get this. I, grew, I spent most of my life here, and I did not know this about San Bernardino until I stumbled into this mystery and started investigating it. San Bernardino in the late 19th century and well into the 20th century was the garden spot of Southern California. It was before LA was anything uh, to speak of. And uh, I'll put it to you this way. They had a park here called Urbita Springs Park. It is now where Inland Center Mall is. But this Urbita Springs Park, it had carnival rides. It had a zoo. It had all this stuff of the day. It was the Disneyland of its day. Um, when people came to Southern California, they made a point to come to San Bernardino and spend a day or two at Urbita Springs Park. On the 4th of July, they would have uh, more people come from surrounding areas to be in the park for the 4th of July celebration than there was the entire population in the city at the time. I mean, it, it was big. It, people loved the place. It was wonderful. And then... Um, starting in mid 20th century and particularly when the air force left, when the air force pulled out in the late eighties, early nineties, that was really the death knell. It, it really took a nosedive, but um, at one time it was the garden spot. And it's my suspicion that uh, what these occultists did, and, and I am convinced that an occultist committed these murders, um, this working that they did effectively, um, assassinated the city and yeah it is hard to believe but california was totally different at that time there were just ranches everywhere the huge ranches of like uh yeah. you know, or big properties like you said a lot of uh yeah. agricultural stuff much more like what the central valley is now it used to be that yeah all over and then it all changed and people actually didn't live by the ocean like it wasn't coveted there were all these cities outside and those were yeah. Those were kind of summer homes, if that. Summer mm -hmm. bungalows. And now yeah. it's all changed because of the car and everything like that. So. And because of uh, you know, California being all the way out here on the on the left coast, um, 
it was the place you said earlier that, you know, the kind of people that came here, um, it drew the, the, the wilder, less inhibited, um, weirder people because it was so really off the beaten path. I mean, San Francisco was the wild place it was, you know, during the, um, the, the uh, Barbary Coast days, right. because it was so far away from um, the East Coast and the bigger cities. So they could be a little looser. They could, you know, uh, swing a little freer, so to speak. And that's how you ended up getting all manner of uh, occultists and in what we call New Agers today and, and, you know, including the dark figures among them, because it was far enough away. That's why Hollywood came out here because all those people that, that wanted to live a little looser and freer with the morals and their lifestyle, they were all back in New York and New Jersey and the weather out here allowed for them to shoot year round on their films and be away from the beaten path so they could, they could get wild if they wanted to in their spare time. That's the story of Hollywood. So, you know, that's the story of uh, particularly Southern California. Yeah, and they got away from Edison. Apparently, they didn't have to pay the right. licensing fees that that he was uh, trying yeah. to impose upon them. So it's yeah. always been a kind of a freewheeling uh-huh. thing. And Crowley rolled rolled through here, right? I know he was in San Francisco right before the earthquake. I think he came through California twice. And he mm-hmm. was actually friends with Lewis, who was the Immork uh, guy in San Jose. Like he mm-hmm. had a relationship with the Rosicrucian. Mm-hmm. You know, either bought land in San Jose or had some kind of affiliation with California. It's really something else. In yeah, and to Jack Parsons. Right, right. And on his trip in 1915, I was able, this is in the book, I was able to uh, prove that Crowley had to have come through San Bernardino right in the middle of this mystery. It was early November, probably just a week before the woman whose death is at the center of all this. They called her Cora Stanton. I don't think that was her real name. Neither does Rick. Um, But uh, I was able to prove that he had to have come through here because we know that he was in San Diego. I think he went to see Catherine Tingley in Point Loma. You know, on that 1915 trip, he he was at Point Loma. We know he was there sometime like late October or whatever. And then we know that in by mid-November, early mid-November, he was doing an interview in Washington, D.C. Okay, so he was traveling by rail. And at the time, I I was able to prove this through the Santa Fe Railroad Museum here. Um, I got to see the books. I got to see the photos of the day and all the records. Um, At the time, because the Mexican War was raging just south of the border, the United States was diverting all passenger rail passenger traffic um, to what we call the well, to the route that's north of the most southern route that takes you along the border. And what that meant was when they came up from San Diego, um, they, they couldn't take a train right out of San Diego to the East Coast. They had to come up north to San Bernardino and then switch trains. There are photos of people overloading the rail cars because they had so much traffic. And I was able to pinpoint that Crowley had to have come through um, San Bernardino during this mystery. And so why is that important? Well, his reputation, um, uh, what, uh, you know, what was going on with this mystery at the time. Um, but more specifically, um, you have Harry Houdini connected in the mix here, which I'll get to. But when you look at Crowley's book, his novel, Moonchild, which was uh, written between uh, 
mid-1917 or 1917 to 1919, I think is when he finished it. Um, the plot of that book is about two occult groups, one good, one bad, having a battle. And there are specific things in there that resonate with this mystery in San Bernardino. So Rick and I argue that when he came through here in late 1915, he learned or maybe knew, caught wind, knew something about what was going on here in San Bernardino. And we argue in the book that that inspired part of the plot and the activities in his novel, Moonchild. So you have that resonance, you know, with his novel, and then you have the Houdini connection, which is, um, which is very interesting too. Um, Crowley's 1915 journey through the United States paralleled Harry Houdini's journey that was happening at the same time. They went the same route. They hit the same places. And here's what's interesting. Here's the Houdini connection to San Bernardino 1915. Um, one of the local residents here at the time was the Episcopal minister known as, uh, by the name of Dr. Walter Franklin Prince. Now, Houdini fans will recognize that name immediately. Um, Prince, I'll tell you why in a moment, but Prince, this mystery woman, Cora Stanton, was very quickly identified as a suicide. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's a suicide. That's it. Let's bury her. And um, suicides at that time were still, they were not afforded respect. It was kind of a shameful thing to commit suicide back then. So you wouldn't get buried. You weren't likely to be buried in the regular part of the cemetery. You were put out in the potter's field where the indigent people and the Castoffs and ne'er do wells, or the social ne'er do wells were. So, and, and it was all a very just sweeping under the rug kind of thing. Walter Franklin Prince gave a very public officiation at her funeral, this mystery woman's funeral. Now, that's something that even Episcopal ministers would not do back then. Okay. Um, and uh, then after this funeral, before the month ends, this is December 1915, before the month ends, Prince and his wife pack up their house, he quits the Episcopal Church, and they move back east where he becomes the number two man at the American Psychical Research Association, which he eventually becomes the director of, and this is where he connects to Houdini. In the 1920s, Prince very famously teams up with Harry Houdini to go after corrupt criminal spiritualists. Now, Rick and I write this in the book, and I argue that Prince's first encounter with corrupt and bad, evil spiritualists was here in San Bernardino, in my opinion. And I think that 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 flavored his opinion towards spiritualists. And so whatever whatever actually happened here, whatever he knew about the the mystery woman, you know, whatever he learned about what was done to her, I think that's what made him just pack up and leave this place and go right to work for the Psychical Research Association, which he was always interested in psychic cases and stuff. But it's it's just a weird juxtaposition um, of events, you know. It really is. And that was always a big thing was the psychic. That was always captured the imagination, probably always captured 
the yeah. imagination of Americans or just people worldwide. It was always around. They're mm-hmm. always kind of hucksters or people like that. And there was a lot. There were four, the one that comes to mind is the Four Square Church in Los Angeles, where mm-hmm. they had this woman who like disappeared and ran off of their. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Paramore and then came back, but she was like a full-on kind of new agey kind of Christian. Sure, like that's sure. her name. But uh, was it was this tour that when Crowley came through? Was that the one where he went through um, the Absinthe House in um, New Orleans and then went west? Right? Does that sound right? No, he came west via the northern route. Remember, he northern went from route. New York, and it was the same. If you're familiar with the route Houdini took in 1915 to come out to California, same route. It was from New York. It was to the um, uh, the Great Lakes region to uh, Detroit. And then um, at one point, he dashed up across the border into Canada because then he came down through uh, Vancouver into Washington, down through Oregon, and then into he was in San Francisco for a while and um, just came on down. He was uh, Houdini was performing in theaters all along this same route. And um, yeah, Crowley came out. He came through L.A. and then went to San Diego to see Tingley and then came through San you know, uh, people ask me, um, there are people who assume, oh, Crowley must have had something to do with this. Um, and, and even my associate guy named Seshari, he insists that I'm all wrong about Crowley and that, uh, he definitely had his evil bloody hands in, in the mix. And, and we just have always agreed to disagree because, you know, I'm a former federal agent. I'm a professional investigator and, um, I, personally need more evidence than just a popular reputation to be convinced, you know, in my opinion, from what I researched about Crowley, uh, I think he personally would have been appalled and disgusted with um, this having been some type of ritualistic serial murders, uh, because I I don't think he would approve of this at all. Uh, I do not see his hand in it. um, And uh, it's, it's, I know it's a minority opinion in our community, um, but, you know, and there's no telling people that despite uh, the guy's not a hero of mine and I know he had a checkered past and I know he did some pretty licentious icky things, but I do, I still don't see him as, uh, you know, the, 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 the reputation describes that so many people just take for granted without looking deeper. Um, there's so a lot there's a lot to look at at Crowley. One of the interesting yeah. things about Crowley is that he was aware of kind of fa- fellow travelers. Like he recognized other occultists and magician. Like he was in that community. So mm-hmm. like he would have known all the other members of Hogwarts, so to speak, you know. Because yeah, I, I, some of them. Yeah. I, I think he definitely had his hand, finger on the pulse of, you know, who were the occult players here in San Bernardino yeah. Valley. Absolutely, yeah. I think that. And we don't know. Here's the thing. We don't know how long he was here. We don't know if he was just here for a few hours to get from one train to another. We don't know if he stayed overnight. There's no, there's no record. He's a of that. hard person to pin down because he moved so often. Even in, mm-hmm. when he was in Ella, I mean, in New York, 
-hmm. he was never really sitting in New York. I mean, we know he was at one Washington place, but like he would go up to Esopus Island and then he was in New Hampshire and then he went to Florida, visited somebody in Florida. Mm -hmm. He kind of kept a very busy like social calendar. He was always hanging out with different varied people. So it makes yeah. perfect sense that it's hard to pin him down. Like some people, super easy. Like they went to, you know, Ohio and stayed for ten years. You're always there, but Hurley's the yeah. opposite. Hurley's really hard. It sounds like a really interesting book. I have not read through it, but where is the best place for people to get Empire of the Wheel? You can you can get it. The link is at walterbosley.com, and if you go to the shop tab, uh, it's there. Um, all my books are print on demand. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's worth the wait because the, the, the printer does an excellent job and, um, you know, but, the, but they are print on demand. And, um, I think if you try, I have put a few of my books, um, through Amazon, but I don't think this one's, this one's there. So walterbosley.com. Walter Bosley has your full list and you've done nonfiction and some fiction books as well. Correct? Oh yeah. Yeah. I started years ago as a fiction writer. My first nonfiction book was latitude 33, the book about Disneyland. And, um, but I still love writing fiction. And nowadays, of course, my fiction is heavily infused with my nonfiction work and the research. In other words, if there's something that I can't substantiate enough to put in the nonfiction book, it turns up in the fiction. So I tell people, don't ignore the fiction. Well, that's uh, that's not unusual. A lot of fiction books are based yeah. on knowledge yeah. from uh, nonfiction. And you also have an active YouTube channel, correct? Yes, I do. The Walter Bosley channel. So, people, I will put links to your website and to your YouTube channel. And you do interviews and are interviewed. And then um, mm -hmm. the best place to contact you if people have follow-up questions or anything, do you have social media or is it your yep. website? Oh, I have uh, social media. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um, you know, uh, uh, send me a message at the YouTube channel. You know, I'll give an email address or something. I'm I'm easy to get to. Get a hold of people want to follow up or talk to you about some of your other work. Yeah, yeah I've done or some yell really at interesting me. Yeah, whatever. That happens. <laughs> but uh, Walter, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Again, we talked about just one of your books, uh -huh. one of your many books, and the title of that book is Empire of the Wheel. An Investigation of Occult Espionage and Murder, written by Walter Bosley, B-O-S-L-E-Y, with Richard Spence. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, William. This is great. All right. Yeah, stay there.